come this Lord's Day to celebrate what we often celebrate once a year, but we celebrate it really every Lord's Day. That is the resurrection of our dear Lord Jesus from the grave. And I thought as I was finishing up my public notes on last Lord's Day sermon, the thought struck me that there is a great asymmetry between the providence of God in the death of Christ and the work of God in the resurrection of Christ. Last Lord's Day, we talked about the providence of God in accomplishing the sacrifice of His Lamb at Calvary for His people. And He used the hands of wicked men to sacrifice the Lord Jesus. There's one thing God knew He could count on was that evil people would hate His Son and would be more than glad to offer Him up as a sacrifice. Of course, they didn't see it that way, did they? They thought they were destroying their foe. But God had a different plan in mind. But last Lord's Day, we talked of three incidents where the believers, the disciples' faithfulness and love of Christ was used by God to, in fact, provoke wicked men into slaying the Savior on the cross. We spoke of Mary's anointing of Christ at the feast, honoring the resurrection of Lazarus, and how that pushed old Judas Iscariot to succumb to his heart of avarice, greed, and hatred to betray the Lord Jesus into the hands of wicked men. We spoke of the incident of the borrowing of the colt for Jesus to ride, whereby He alone recognized He was appropriating the prophecy of Zechariah of the king bringing salvation to His people riding upon the colt of an ass. But surely the wicked rulers, especially the Bible scholars amongst them, they saw what Jesus was doing and it enraged them. And finally... The great praises of Messiah by the people and by the children when he rode into Jerusalem that Palm Sunday, we think it was, and how those praises in which they delineated that Christ is Messiah, Christ is the Son of David, Christ is the King sent from heaven, Christ brings salvation and healing to his people, further enraged those wicked men and set them on that course to put the Lord Jesus to death. They intended to crucify Him, as had been determined beforehand by the counsel of God from eternity past. But that providence extends back to the beginning, really. Although we focused on three instances of God using the acts of His loved ones to further His will and purpose in the crucifixion of Christ in such a way as they never conceived and as they no doubt never wanted. But God knew best, didn't He? He always knows best and He always gets His way. But really the providence of God in the crucifixion of Christ goes back all the way to the beginning of the creation, doesn't it? He promised Adam and Eve in the garden that He would send a child or a son, the seed of the woman, He would send that one to finally destroy the serpent who had brought all this shame and trouble and death into the creation. 
But you can go through the scriptures. We've pointed out many times how God worked His will to save His people by the dying of Jesus. The ark that Noah faithfully built not only rescued mankind from judgment, but also rescued, also delivered, if, if you will, up ultimately the Lord Jesus. You think of that if God had destroyed the world by the flood and there had been no ark to preserve mankind, why then all the saints that went before Noah who had trusted in God would be out of luck, wouldn't they? Because there would be no Messiah to save. But God had promised and He worked through His purposes. Part of that was to ensure that Noah would build the ark, which was itself a picture of Jesus enclosing His people and carrying through the wrath of God's judgment, so that they're locked up inside safe and dry, while the ark, which is Christ, is battered and bruised and torn by the waves that pound upon it. And then, of course, there's the story of Joseph, who was kidnapped and sold into slavery by his brothers. But he told them later on that God meant it for good, didn't he? To the saving of much people. And you remember that unlike express grain... The granaries of Joseph were full to overflowing. And there was enough plenty to save a whole civilization. And not only that, but save the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through whom one day he would bring forth that Lamb of God who would be crucified to save all of God's people. And then, of course, we could talk about Boaz rescuing Ruth, through whom Messiah ultimately was born. We could talk about skipping forward almost all the way to the end. Mary's husband, Joseph, who obeyed the Word of God in a dream and took the family, including the baby Jesus, to Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod. You see, not only does the providence of God advance His purpose, Not only does God use the acts of faithful men, He also frustrates the acts of wicked men. He frustrated Herod, didn't He? He frustrated the brethren of Joseph, didn't He? They didn't get what they wanted. Herod didn't get what he wanted. But He also frustrates the well-meaning but foolish acts of His own people. You remember that Peter tried to stop the crucifixion. Remember, he whipped out a sword and tried to slice one of the servants' heads open, but all he ended up doing was clipping them on the ear. And Jesus healed the ear and told Peter to put away his sword, and and the disciples forsook him and fled. That was part of God's purpose as well, part of the means by which he protected the disciples from the wrath of those who hated Christ, so that he might not lose a single one of his people, of his disciples, whom he had taken to himself. So many ways in which the providence of God brought the Lord Jesus to the cross. And yet it was always the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. So we usually think of God's providence as his caring for his people, guiding in all things to accomplish his good pleasure for us. But in the resurrection of Christ from the grave we are stymied to discover just how God used His people to accomplish it. Because, directly at least, He didn't. There's nothing we could do to help Jesus rise from the grave, was there? There's nothing 
that wicked men could do to stop Jesus from rising from the grave. So while it is still the providence of God, nevertheless there's this asymmetry that in the crucifixion we can see how God used the faithful and loving acts of His people to accomplish the sacrifice of Christ. But we cannot really see, can we, the way that God used the conduct of His people to raise Christ from the dead, can we? Well, that's because nobody could help or assist the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That was something that only God could work. He had no helpers at all in raising up Jesus. Because it is utterly contrary to the working of nature. What could we have done? What could anyone have done to help Jesus rise from the grave? It was hopeless. There was no hope. It wasn't even worth trying, was it? There wasn't anything anybody could do. Nature kills, destroys, death comes upon all men because of sin. And the resurrection of Christ is therefore a pure miracle, isn't it? Nobody else's hand is in it but the Lord's. Now some might think that the angels helped when they rolled away the stone, but this is wrong. As romantic an idea as it is, they did not let Christ out of the tomb. They rolled away the stone so that we could look in and see that it was really empty. You remember that Christ's glorified body was not subject to the way the world worked anymore. He could vanish and appear without traversing the distance between the points that he had started and stopped from. He could enter through locked doors and then leave through the same locked doors. His body was no longer subject to the way the world works. And one day when we are given our glorified bodies, they won't be subject to the way the world works either. Because our bodies will be made like unto His glorious body, the Scriptures tell us. Well, there is a mystery and a wonder and a thing greatly to be admired. So therefore, the angels didn't help Jesus rise from the dead. By the time they rolled the stone away, He had long gone. He was on His way. Now, Jesus didn't need any help rising from the grave. We see this stark contrast laid out in Paul's sermon to the Jews at Antioch of Pisidian in Acts chapter 13, and we read that sermon where he talked about how God had sent a deliverer in his Son, in the promised Lord Jesus, how God had sent him. He talks about how he was in Jerusalem, Christ was, and the rulers that dwelt there Because they knew Him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled the prophets in condemning Him. And though they found no cause of death in Him, yet desired they Pilate that He should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. But God raised Him from the dead. You see how Paul apportions the blame for the crucifixion of Christ upon wicked men. But he makes it clear that the blame for his resurrection is all God's glory. It's all the work of God. God raised him from the dead. He doesn't invoke the the intervention of any human being to explain the resurrection from the grave. 
And he goes on, We declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise that was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us his children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. And then he goes on to explain the text of Scripture that had foretold the resurrection of Christ, and therefore the execution of Christ beforehand. You remember what it said in verse 35 of Acts 13. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all the things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. So the central point of this gospel message is the death of Christ at the hands of wicked men and the glorious resurrection of Christ exclusively by the work of God. And that this is an announcement to the Lord's people that He has provided a Redeemer and a Savior in the Lord Jesus, and that He has provided forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of sin and justification. Remember, that means the declaration that there is no fault at all in God's people for Jesus' sake and on account of Jesus dying. Rather, there is redemption and forgiveness of sin and everlasting life through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus wrought by God. It was this pure miracle that men put to death the Lord Jesus, but God raised him from the grave. Can you recall that Peter had preached the same theme in Acts chapter 2, where he said that Christ was delivered up by God. Ye have taken him, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Whom what? God hath raised up. You see how the Bible proportions or distributes the blame, if you will, for the death of Christ to wicked people, but all at the direction of God from beginning. But then he reserves exclusively to himself the truth of the resurrection, that God raised up Jesus all by himself, without anybody plotting or helping in any way whatsoever. But then you remember Peter's explanation for why this had to be. It's the same as Paul's. Because he could not be holden. It was not possible that he could be holden by death. Why? Because of the promise made to Messiah in Psalm 16. Thou wilt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. You know, we could have given long lectures and doctrinal dissertations on why it was not possible for Christ to remain dead in the tomb. But... Peter and Paul, they just went straight to the promise of God. It wasn't possible because God said He wouldn't allow it. And thus it was that God Himself, by Himself, raised up the Lord Jesus from the grave. And today we come to celebrate it. There was no man to help raise up Jesus. We celebrate a complete miracle today, wrought by God Himself. 
And apparently his disciples were so dull and so distraught and so cast down by the death of Christ that none of them took any action not to help Jesus rise from the grave. As far as we could tell, they weren't even praying for him. They thought all hope was lost. And even more distressing than that, none of them waited expectantly by the tomb, did they? You know, there was all the reason why they should, because Jesus had told them over and over again he would rise again the third day. It was like they didn't hear him, or like they didn't believe him, or like somehow the death that he died somehow overrode the promise he made. He had promised he was going to die too, that the wicked men would put him to death. He had promised that, and lo and behold, it happened. But the annex to the promise, he would rise again the third day, they didn't believe it, did they? Because if they had believed it, why, well, they should have been camping out in the garden, shouldn't they? None of his friends staked out the garden. That's what they should have done. You know, people nowadays, they'll stake out the line for concert tickets for days, won't they? And you see video of these schmucks out there lined up in their little tents and their little cook stoves and uh, their ice chests of beer and so forth. And it's a big, big production, isn't it, to stake out the promised concert tickets that are going on sale in 72 hours. But not so the saints of the Lord Jesus. They did not stake out the garden to wait expectantly for the promised resurrection. The tragedy is only his enemies staked out the garden, didn't they? And they were only there to stop what they claimed were false resurrections taking place, that the disciples might come and steal his body. You know, what stands out about the crucifixion is how God used men's acts, good and bad, to ensure the death of Jesus for our salvation. But what stands out about the resurrection of Jesus is how God thwarted men's deepest attempts, desperate attempts, to stop the resurrection of Jesus. In Matthew's Gospel, the 27th chapter, we come across one of the first examples in the Scripture of how wicked men tried to thwart the resurrection of Christ. We read this morning at verse 62 of Matthew 27, Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together into Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, While he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He's risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, You have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. But they could not stop God from raising up Jesus. Anyway, they had a Roman guard, they had a seal, they had a group of people whose job it was to sit there and watch to make sure Jesus' body stayed in the tomb, didn't they? That couldn't stop God from raising up Jesus from the dead. So you see that here was an attempt by men to stop the resurrection, but all God had to do was just thwart them. They had no power to stop His plan. They had power to carry out His plan to crucify Christ, but they had no power to stop His plan that Christ should rise again from the grave and defeat death for His people. 
those efforts did not stop then, I, I suggest to you that they continue into this day. That the efforts against the truth of the resurrection continue into this day. We have all kind of skeptics and apostates and atheists going around denying that Christ rose from the grave. Guess what? They hadn't been able to stop Him from rising from the grave. And more importantly, they hadn't been able to stop us from proclaiming that He rose from the grave. But I wanted to walk you through a few of these examples of the continuing effort to stop Jesus from rising from the grave that take place after He already, in fact, rose from the grave. They wish to deny the resurrection of Jesus and to suppress the preaching of it. The devil's strategy along this way began that very Sunday morning with the bribes, didn't it? You remember the bribes that were made when they found out that Jesus was not in the tomb anymore. We read of that in Matthew 28. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came unto the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. Of course, they weren't supposed to sleep. And I'm sure the rule was then as it is now, that if you're a guard in the military and you fall asleep on duty, you'll be put to death. So it must have been much money in order to induce them to say this. They said, if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Their plan to continue to stop Jesus from rising from the dead after he already had done so was to spread lies that he was still dead. His disciples had stolen the body right out from under the noses of this little group of guards that had been set as a watch on the stone. They couldn't stop the truth regardless, though, could they? Therefore, they had to escalate the means by which they sought to stop the resurrection of Christ post hoc. In Acts chapter 4, there is that famous incident in which the apostles are preaching the resurrection of Christ and healing people, thereby demonstrating the truth of their teaching. And so the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide, howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about five thousand. It came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined, of the good deed done to the impotent man, by which means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Once again, you see the partition of responsibility. You crucified him. Of course, God was in control and intended that to happen. 
God accomplished it by their wicked deeds. But God raised him up. And guess what? Nobody can stop him, including you people. God raised him from the dead. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. When they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them, that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And of course, that's what they did. And at verse 21, So when they had further threatened them, they let them go. And so the lies and the bribes escalated, you see, to threats of violence. And then in Acts 4 at verse 33, we see the result of that at verse 33. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So every time wicked men tried to, as it were, stop the resurrection of Christ after the fact, all it did was magnify the resurrection of Christ and result in its promotion ever more widely by the Lord's people. So they escalated to beatings next. If threats were not doing the trick, how about beatings? In Acts chapter 5 at verse 25, Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Isn't that interesting? So here they're tacitly admitting that when it came to putting Jesus to death, they had a hand in it. And now they're troubled because they can't stop God from raising him from the dead, which they did not have a hand in. They want to have a hand in stopping it, you see, and they're desperately trying to control the narrative, as we put it now. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. There it is again. There it is again, the asymmetry of the whole thing. You put him to death, God raised him again from the dead. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior. For to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. But then it tells what they decided to do at verse 40. And to him they agreed, that is Gamaliel. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing 
they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Well, since the beatings didn't work, they escalated finally in the case of the martyr Stephen to outright murder. And we read of that incident in Acts chapter 7, and particularly at the end of his firebrand sermon to them, at verse 51 of Acts 7, when Stephen declared, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven, and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Now that was particularly offensive to them, because here now was Stephen, an eyewitness to the majesty of Christ and glory, testifying to exactly what Christ had told them at his trial. You remember, are thou the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And his response was, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man in power and glory at the right hand of God. So now, the resurrection of Christ, which they were still trying to stop, now they had this witness, the martyr Stephen, who testified that, guess what? What Jesus had promised at his trial, that crooked, trumped-up trial that y'all held when y'all sent him to death, why, I can testify that he has been raised and appears in glory at the right hand of God. And so this really pushed him over the edge. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. So you see, they went from bribes to threats to beatings and now to murder. But all it did was result in the spread of the truth and knowledge of the resurrection. And we see this most clearly in Acts chapter 9. Here's Saul of Tarsus, who has witnessed the murder of Stephen and said, I can do that. I can do better than that. I can do better than that to stomp out this lie about the resurrection. Saul, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And so we know the story well of Paul's Damascus Road experience, in which there shined around him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And so Paul's sight is lost, and he had to be led by the hand into Damascus. But then the Lord sent his faithful servant, Ananias, to heal Paul. 
And of course, Ananias objected, but the Lord explained to him what his purpose was. And we read it, verse 17 of Acts 9, Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. So this is where the escalating attempts to silence the testimony of the resurrection are seen to fulfill exactly the opposite, weren't they? You see how God thwarted all of men's attempts to stop Christ's resurrection and to stop those people who would try to stamp out the knowledge of Christ's resurrection and instead turn their actions into its promotion once Paul was confronted by the risen Lord whom they had been so careful to try to deny up to that point. He was confronted by him. And you know, once Paul was confronted by the risen Lord, he just couldn't fight the resurrection anymore, could he? He just couldn't fight it anymore. He was converted unto Christ. And so we have all the glorious passages of Scripture where Paul proclaims the resurrection of Jesus. Of all the writers of the New Testament, Paul is the most urgent toward this matter as if he is trying to undo the wicked acts of the men who went before him and of his own former acts in attempting to stop the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You remember in 1 Corinthians 15, he has that glorious teaching, Since by man came death, even so by man comes the resurrection of the dead. For just as all those who are in Adam die, so too all those in Christ shall be made alive. He preaches the truth of the resurrection and its application to the Lord's people, that all of the Lord's people will be raised unto new life, eternal life, by the Lord Jesus, just as the Lord Jesus Himself rose from the grave after He was dead. You know, nobody could help Jesus rise from the dead. And nobody could stop him either, could they? And guess what? Nobody can stop Jesus from raising his people from the dead either. And that's the great comfort that we have, that no matter what happens to us in this world, no matter how wicked men are, and no matter what evil they plot against us, nobody can stop Jesus from keeping his promise to raise his people from the dead. Christ's power over death and hell is inexorable and overwhelming. And just as no one could stop Jesus from rising from the dead, no one could help Jesus rise from the dead, no one could stamp out the knowledge that Jesus rose from the dead, so too no one can stop Jesus from raising His people from the dead. This is the will of my Father, he said in his ministry. The will of my Father who sent me, that of all that he hath given me, I should not lose a single one, but should raise it up 
at the last day. The same power that raised up Jesus from the grave, Paul tells us, shall surely raise up us also. And by his dying for us, Christ gains the legal right to release us from the punishment that had been promised for our sin. There could be no resurrection of ourselves, or of Jesus for that matter, if there had been no sacrifice on Calvary's tree. In order for Jesus to rise again, he had to be put to death first, you see. And so too, in order for us to rise again through the power of Christ, Jesus had to be put to death for us as well. But the difference is, all the lambs slain on altars were dead and gone for good because they could never take away our sin. You remember in Hebrews, it talks about how they were all taken and burnt outside the camp. They were all used up. They were all used up. They were destroyed. And they hadn't accomplished anything permanent at all. They could not take away the sin of the offerers of the sacrifice. But our sacrifice lives forever. He rose again the third day because His bloody offering took away our sin completely. So while those offerings were destroyed outside the camp, our offering lives and gives us life. Life in this life and life everlasting in the resurrection and glory forever. And Jesus has promised one day soon He will celebrate this feast that we gather around this table for every Lord's. And He will celebrate this feast with us face to face in His Father's house. One day we will behold our risen Lord, the same one who rose again from the grave all those years ago, the same one whom nobody could stop God raising from the grave. And that thought, the thought of it, as it did to Job, takes our breath away. So let's give thanks for the Lord's table. Give thanks for the fact that God used all the acts of wicked men some of the acts of his loved ones to put Jesus to death on the cross as our sacrifice. But by himself he raised up Christ. And by Christ so also will he raise up us also one day. Praise God. I'd like to ask Brother Whitney if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. And the scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice that you worked a mighty work bringing your dear Son to the altar of sacrifice for us, that you laid upon him all of our crimes, and he patiently bore them as you judged him in our place, as the wrath was exhausted upon his sacred head so that we might be set free. We thank you that he bought the right to raise us from the dead. Everyone who trusts in him, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, the Scriptures tell us. And we lay hold on that promise and call upon Christ, lay our hands upon His head and cry out, O God, judge my crimes in this, Your dear Son, the Lamb who's slain. We thank You for the blood 
that He poured out to make atonement for us and for this cup that He left us. And that He told us that this cup represents the blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sin. We thank You that You have taken away our sin in Jesus and by His dying for us. And we thank You that You raised Him up so that He might raise us up one day. We thank You that nobody could stop Him and that nobody still can't stop Him from raising up His people whom He loves. Bless us as we partake of this cup, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood. For the remission of sin, do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 192 in the black book, number 192. But Jesus lives, the Savior lives, in heaven He pleads for me. And boldly I approach to God, His blood, my only plea. Number 192.